Hi and welcome. I'm Greg Oberst, and this podcast is the second of a three-part series titled Surrendering the Sword. It's the true story of Nobuo Fujita, the only enemy pilot to bomb the United States mainland by fixed-wing aircraft in the history of the country. In part one, we looked at the details of that 1942 bombing run by Nobuo on Wheeler Ridge near Mount Emily, just a few miles inland from the town of Brookings, on the southern Oregon coastline. In part two, we're going to review Fujita's extraordinary and controversial return to Brookings in 1962. We'll talk more about part three at the end of this podcast. And now, part two, Fujita's return. Fall, 1961, Brookings, Oregon. Pharmacist Doug Peterson had just returned from a state convention of the Junior Chamber of Commerce, the JCs. Doug was the president of the local JCs club in Brookings. At the convention, Peterson had observed what other communities around the state had been doing to promote their hometowns. Inspired, Doug put the same task to his own group in Brookings, a sleepy, remote coastal town in need of a shot in the arm. He posed to his group, What could we do to bring some attention, maybe drive more tourism, pump the economy, bring some identity to this town? A few ideas were tossed about. Nothing jumped off the table for Doug until one of his fellow JCs mentioned that the area around Brookings had its own unique place in World War II history, history that few people in the area knew anything about. Seems there's a spot up near Mount Emily that's the only place on the mainland United States to have ever been bombed by manned enemy aircraft during wartime. Wait, what was that? The mainland was bombed during World War II? That couldn't be right, could it? Something about a float plane, a submarine launch, a small fire easily extinguished, government censorship? Establishing that it was indeed true, the JCs took the conversation further. Someone wondered out loud, What about the pilot of that Japanese bomber? Did he survive the war? What if we invited him to Brookings and extend an olive branch in the interest of furthering good relations with Japan? We could make it part of our annual Azalea Festival. Well, for Doug, it was the best idea on the table. It also fit nicely with part of the J.C. Creed. The brotherhood of man transcends the sovereignty of nations. Still, not every member was instantly on board with the idea of inviting a former Japanese Navy pilot to Brookings, even with the local historical significance. With the horrors of World War II still fresh in the minds of many veterans around the community, the project would certainly draw some negative attention. Fair enough. Peterson and his fellow JCs agreed to, first, do some research on the former Japanese Navy pilot. Project X, as the JCs called it, was passed and assigned top-secret status. No sense in letting the word get out before the group knew if the former enemy pilot was even alive, let alone willing to come to America. Doug Peterson went to work crafting a letter to the Japanese consulate office in Portland, Oregon. Dear sirs, we're trying to find a fellow countryman of yours. The letter went on to describe what Doug knew about the pilot, his mission, his significance to Brookings, and what the JCs had in mind should they find the man. With no response, Doug sent a second letter. Still nothing. 
It appeared to the JCs by now early 1962 that Project X was dead in the water. Winter days around Brookings can be long on rain, short on daylight, and big on emptiness. So when a limousine drives through your town and parks in front of your drugstore, it gets noticed. Doug Peterson peered through the front doorway of his shop as he watched one, two, now three well-dressed men emerge from the big car. Then he noticed something else. They were all Japanese. Doug stepped out and greeted them on the sidewalk. Turns out they were all from the Japanese consulate office in Portland. The consulate officers told Doug that they had found the Japanese pilot the JCs had been asking about. They found him alive and well, as a matter of fact, and, assuming a few conditions were met, willing to come to Brookings. Doug Peterson was stunned and speechless as he listened. Some weeks earlier in Tuchiura, Japan, Nobuo Fujita was busy at his hardware store when he received word that a civic group in America was looking for him. The Brookings Harbor JCs wanted to know if he'd consider a trip to Oregon, Brookings, near the site of his World War II bombing runs. Brookings, Oregon, the names were all too familiar to Nobuo. The mission locale was certainly right. The rest of the news utterly dumbfounded the former Japanese Navy pilot. Why would his former enemy invite the very person who tried to inflict harm on them to visit their town? Could this really be a sincere invitation? Or was it a ruse to capture Fujita and try him for war crimes? There was more for Nobuo to consider. His family, a wife, two children, his business. After many years of hardship after the war, Nobuo was finally doing well. What would be the risk to all of that? Or was this truly an opportunity for Nobuo, perhaps even his duty, to help his country forge a stronger relationship with the United States? That prospect appealed greatly to Nobuo. Fujita didn't say yes, and he didn't say no either. Maybe. Some conditions were obvious. An assurance of safety, of course, and the JCs would have to foot the bill. Back in Brookings, Doug Peterson had some astonishing news for his fellow JCs. One Mr. Nobuo Fujita was not only alive and well, but willing to visit if certain conditions were met, most notably paying the way for Nobuo and his family. The group did the math. Airfare, food, lodging, for how many days? A week, maybe? Pencils down, the team got to a number, and it gave them pause. To make the project work, they'd need to come up with $3,000. Peterson didn't need to ask what funds existed in the J.C.'s bank account. He already knew. The Civic Group was flat broke. As it turns out, J.C.'s president, Doug Peterson, was also the president of the Brookings Harbor Chamber of Commerce. At the next meeting of the chamber, Peterson informed the larger civic organization of Project X and invited the group to join the junior chamber in support. Most of his fellow chamber members liked the idea, but agreed to kick in only 500 bucks. Suddenly, though, the JCs found they had an even bigger problem than money to deal with. News of Project X got out. 
To many citizens in the Brookings Harbor area, the thought of hosting and honoring a former World War II enemy during their beloved annual Azalea Festival, no matter how historically significant he might be, was like a punch in the gut. Veterans and veterans organizations voiced their opposition loudly and clearly at town and civic club meetings, at restaurants and bars, even in the local newspaper where more than a hundred names appeared on a petition to pull the invitation. Members of the Brookings Harbor District 17C School Board set up a picket outside Doug Peterson's drugstore to protest the JC's effort. Members of the JC's even received death threats. Better get two body bags ready, said one anonymous caller to Doug Peterson. One for Fujita, and the other one for you. The threats forced the civic group to hold their meetings at secret locations. Meanwhile, at the Japanese consulate office in Portland and in the Fujita household in Tuchiura, word of the protests had Nobuo and other Japanese officials concerned. The last thing Nobuo wanted was to create unrest, riots perhaps, or have his presence in the United States do anything that would bring dishonor to his own country. Chasing a PR nightmare, the JCs finally began to get their own message out, that the invitation was less about honoring Nobuo, in fact, it wasn't about that at all, and more about extending an olive branch, a gesture of goodwill, to a former enemy who, yes, did happen to have some local significance. Press inquiries followed, from Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. The Associated Press and United Press International picked up the story. Peterson gave interviews to anybody who would listen. The BBC even called. Slowly, support for the effort began to trickle in. Oregon's then-governor, Mark Hatfield, sent along his support and encouragement for the effort. The State Department of the United States, on behalf of the Kennedy administration, sent along their support. And then there was a man by the name of Logan Kay, a veteran wounded in World War II, who stepped forward with a small donation in support of the invitation. Logan said he, for one, was ready to forgive and move on. The support tempered the uproar around Brookings somewhat. Nobuo Fujita himself was feeling better about making the trip and signaled his willingness to accept the invitation in the name of goodwill between countries. Still, the Brookings Harbor JCs had a final decision to make to proceed with the project, still some $2,000 short of budget goal, or stop the effort. The JCs put it to a vote. Are we in or out? The vote was unanimous. In. On the picket line in front of Chetco Rexall Drugstore, a school board member pushed his head through the front door and shouted a question at Doug Peterson. Are you going through with this invitation? Yes, Peterson affirmed. Then you'll never see any of us in here again. The JCs took out a loan from a local bank, set the dates for the visit, coinciding with the late May 1962 Azalea Festival, worked out lodging, and sent airline tickets off to Nobuo Fujita and his family. Then they held their breath. By late May of 1962, Doug Peterson had handed over the presidency of the JCs to Dr. Bill McChesney, the town dentist. A few days before the festival, McChesney and Brookings Mayor C. Fell Campbell rolled out by car to meet Nobuo Fujita and his family at the Portland International Airport. There were awkward handshakes and bows as the greeting party welcomed Nobuo Fujita 
wife Ayako, and son Yasuyoshi, who knew enough English to help with translations. Nobuo and his wife spoke little, if any, English. After an interview on Portland television that evening, just the kind of publicity the JCs were hoping for, the Fujita family, the dentist, and the mayor spent the night in the city to rest up for the long six-hour drive to the other end of the state the next day. On the road, McChesney and Campbell were a bit apprehensive what would be awaiting them upon arrival in Brookings. The first hint of what they thought might be trouble came in Port Orford, Oregon. Rolling through the small coastal town, McChesney tapped the brakes at what looked like a roadblock ahead. A human roadblock. McChesney's thinking, great, we're not even to Brookings yet, and already this. He slowed the car to a stop, and then observed, this crowd doesn't look so unfriendly. A man approached the car. Bill rolled down his window. It was the mayor of Port Orford. He wanted to meet Nobuo Fujita. The crowd waiting behind him had messages of greetings and a few gifts for the Japanese family. Greatly relieved, the Fujitas and their escorts stepped from the car and received a warm welcome. After a few minutes, the traveling party proceeded south on Highway 101 on the final one-hour leg to Brookings. What kind of greeting would be waiting for them there? Turns out, not much of a greeting at all. The JCs had scripted a low-key arrival, and the traveling party slipped into Brookings with virtually no fanfare. The Fujitas spent the first night of their stay at the McChesney home. That night, Nobuo shared a story with Bill McChesney that few people outside of the Imperial Japanese Navy knew anything about. By the midsummer of 1945, Nobuo was training in the suicide attack unit, the kamikazes. He was just a few days away from his one and only mission when the war ended. The next day, the first day of the 1962 Azalea Festival, the JCs launched into a busy schedule of weekend festival appearances and activities for Nobuo and his family. With a sizable contingent, for Brookings anyway, of media in tow, a reporter from Life magazine was even on hand, Nobuo, Fujita, and family made the rounds to typical community festival events, the flower show, the fireman's muster, the seafood luncheon, the pit barbecue. Nobuo tried to play a bagpipe. They met the Azalea Festival queen and court, town leaders and dignitaries, Logan Kay, and even Fred Flynn one of the forest rangers working the bomb site on Mount Emily in the days after Fujita's September 9, 1942 mission. Fred told Nobuo, you're one of the world's worst fire setters. Beyond a smile and a chuckle, Nobuo didn't have much to say about that comment. The itinerary also included a flight with J.C. and private pilot Bill Landis at the controls of his small single-engine Piper Tripacer. Where do they fly? Well over Mount Emily, and the bomb site, of course. Nobuo took the controls from Landis for a few minutes. There was also a grandmother's shower, thrown by the JCS for Mrs. Fujita in honor of her daughter, Yoriko, who could not make the trip on account of being pregnant. One JCS, Shirley Oberst, remembers Ayako not being too accustomed to sugary cake. With each successful appearance and visit around the area, the JCs were starting to believe that Project X might just come off without any further violence or protest. But they did have one more decision to make. The highlight of the festival 
was the parade down Chetco Avenue, about a two-mile stretch, and as small-town parade routes go, this was a long one. If there was an event at which Nobuo and his family would be most vulnerable to, say, aggression, it was the parade. Further, an appearance by the former Japanese pilot in the parade might play into opposition talking points that the enemy was there to be honored. The visit had been going well up to that point, the Saturday morning of the parade. Still, the JCs couldn't see taking any chances with their guests. The Fujitas would not ride in the parade. Instead, Nobuo and his family would view the parade curbside in front of the Pinecone Theater, sort of the media center of the parade, where Curry Radio would set up remote broadcast gear every year for live coverage of the event. But it's not like Nobuo went completely unnoticed. On the contrary, Fujita became very popular there on the side of the road. Under the watchful eye of the JCs, local police, and the FBI, Nobuo entertained many introductions, signed autographs, and even shook the hands of a few parade marchers as they passed by. Nobuo was gracious to all. Clearly, and much to the relief of the JCs and just about anybody who had a stake in Project X, the opposition was standing down. Now there was one more event on the Fujita family schedule. A private banquet to be held at Emily's restaurant on the final night of the Fujita family visit. Again, the JCs were careful with their language. The banquet was not an event to honor Nobuo, simply to offer thanks and appreciation for his effort to visit and help well, foster the brotherhood of man. At the event, there were many speeches, bows, handshakes, and platitudes, and then it was time for Nobuo to speak. As it turns out, Nobuo's time at the microphone was less about what he said and more about what he did. Among the Fujita family treasures was a 400-year-old samurai sword. In keeping with samurai tradition, Nobuo had that very sword with him on every one of his missions in World War II, including his bombing run over Mount Emily. Family tradition held that Nobuo would bequeath the heirloom to his son. At the banquet, by handing the sword to Yasuyoshi, he did just that. Then, in front of a stunned and silent audience, and as per his father's wishes, Yasuyoshi offered the treasure to his new family, the people of Brookings. Yasuyoshi handed the sword to Mayor Campbell, and the story was complete. Nobuo would say later, It is the finest of samurai traditions to pledge peace and friendship by submitting the sword to a former enemy. Yasuyoshi went on to deliver a few additional words of thanks on behalf of the family, and there was an invitation from the Fujitas to, as Yasuyoshi said, let youngsters to our home in order to let them experience typical Japanese way of living. Taking his turn at the podium, Mayor Campbell suggested to a touched and tearful audience that the gesture by Fujita should serve to cut the strings of any hatred that might be in our hearts. The warm welcome from the people of Brookings during that 1962 visit made a huge impact on Nobuo, and he would never be shy about expressing that. For the next 38 years, the bond between the Nobuo Fujita family and the city of Brookings would grow very strong. Though his hardware store eventually failed, Fujita managed to save enough money working as a bus driver well past his retirement age to make good on his invitation to host students from Brookings. In 1985, three teens from Brookings Harbor High School, along with then-JC's president Mike Moran, finally made their visit to Tokyo 
23 years after the invitation. Nobuo himself returned to Brookings three times in the 1990s. In 1992, Fujita hiked to the bombsite and planted a redwood sapling, which he called a peace tree. In 1995, Fujita was on hand for the dedication of a samurai sword display at the new Chetco Community Public Library. Nobuo also donated multicultural books to the library. Nobuo was not on hand in 1997 when the city of Brookings made him an honorary citizen. He died that same year of lung cancer. Nobuo was 85. Eight miles east on Mount Emily, a simple post marks the spot where Nobuo Fujita became the first and only enemy pilot to bomb the United States mainland. It also marks the spot where some of his ashes were scattered, around the peace tree in 1998 by his daughter. Nuriko said that her father's soul would forever be flying over the forest. At the beginning of part one of this series, I commented that the story of Nobuo Fujita was, and remains, one of the most untold of World War II. The telling of part two of Surrendering the Sword is largely based on my own personal interview with Doug Peterson, the former J.C., he and I talked at length in the year 2000. However, there are at least three other excellent resources and accounts of the story of Nobuo Fujita's World War II mission and his return in 1962. First, a book by photographer and author Bert Weber called Fujita, the Flying Samurai, 2000 Web Research Group Publishers. Bert was one of the first authors in the 1970s to start unpacking the story that had gone largely silent again in the years after Nobuo's 1962 visit. In fact, up until the early 1970s, the bombsite itself was not only unmarked, it was lost altogether. In 1972, Weber, with a small team of Forest Service personnel with a few archived maps and coordinates in hand, hiked the rough forested terrain on the slopes of Mount Emily and nearby Wheeler Ridge until at last they found and confirmed the location of the bombsite. This time, the Forest Service did a better job of marking it, even made a trail to it from the nearest road about a mile away. Then, in 2008, the Forest Service dedicated a new interpretive trail to the bombsite that now includes a viewing platform right above Ground Zero. The Japanese Naval Academy even offered up a beautiful maplewood bench that sits right along the trail. Bert Weber also orchestrated a reunion between Nobuo Fujita and Keith Johnson. Following his Forest Service duty in the summer of 1942, Keith returned to Nebraska to finish college as a member of the Navy Reserve Corps, meaning he was officer material. Keith served aboard ships in World War II, the Korean War, and by the 1960s, Keith Johnson was a division commander of a Navy fleet that supported operations in the Vietnam War. In 1974, Keith was still in the Navy, by this time working in Hong Kong, when Bert Weber contacted him about meeting up with Nobuo Fujita. Keith was excited about the idea, as was Nobuo, and the two met in Tokyo, Japan. They also met again, the second time in Hong Kong. The two Navy men got along just fine. Keith had a lot of questions for Nobuo about Japanese submarine technology in World War II. More recently, Another telling of the story came in the form of a documentary by filmmaker Ilana Soul. The film Samurai in the Oregon Sky is a remarkable accomplishment. In the film, Ilana captures first-hand accounts from Keith Johnson, 
and surviving members of the 1962 JCs, including Doug Peterson, Bill McChesney, and my father, Norm Oberst. You can learn more about the film and where you might catch a showing or order a DVD at www.samuraiintheoregonsky.com. Again, the filmmaker is Ilana Sol, S-O-L. You can also see the link in my show notes for Part 2. Finally, the University of Oregon Archive has a collection of materials assembled by Bill McCash, library.oregon.edu. In Part 3 of this series, you'll hear an actual audio recording of the 1962 J.C.'s Banquet and Samurai Sword Dedication. It's an important piece of history taped by my father, Norm Oberst, for the radio station he managed and co-owned, K-U-R-Y. At that time, Dad was a young 34-year-old member of the JCs and a participant in Project X. We'll talk to you again in Part 3. Thanks for listening. I'm Greg Oberst.